But if you wanted to cite the absolute concept of connoisseurship, yeah, one would think about Tafaf because the people who are going there, I suspect that if they saw Brad Pitt walking down an aisle, you know, in Miami at Basel, everybody would be screaming Brad Pitt. I suspect in, in Maastricht, everybody's response would be, that's very nice for him. But let me get back to what I was looking at because connoisseurship is a quality that doesn't get discussed very much. And connoisseurship is about passion for your subject and being passionate and knowledgeable about your subject. So for me, connoisseurship is incredibly important. And I think it's something that you walk through TAFAF and oozes off every booth. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a journalist for nearly 20 years, most recently as the Home and Design Director at Departures Magazine. And this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Welcome to a very special episode of The Grand Tourist, sponsored by Tafoff Online, a virtual edition of the legendary art fair running from September 9th through the 13th. You can register at tafoff.com, and we'll return in October with our second season of weekly episodes. You know, I've been to a lot of art and design fairs in my career, and visiting Tafoff, whether in its traditional home in Maastricht or in New York, is absolutely special. If you've ever wondered where the Louvre goes shopping, this is the place. Walking through its hundreds of exhibitors is like visiting one of the great comprehensive museums, but everything is for sale. Ornate necklaces once owned by Spanish royalty, illuminated manuscripts that look like they're straight out of Harry Potter's personal library, vivid portraits from across the centuries, and even a pocket watch or two. In some ways, it's even more thrilling than a museum visit. Most of these treasures were hidden in private hands, and a show like Tafoff is where the public can get a peek at a masterpiece before it returns back into someone's home for another generation or more. As I like to tell my friends who've never been to Tafoff, if you see something and think to yourself, gosh, that looks like a Magritte, but one I've never seen before, then it's a Magritte you've never seen before, and you might never see it again. But an often overlooked element of Tafoff is how it mixes old and new. Sure, there are Renaissance canvases everywhere, but there's 20th century modernist furniture, stunning Picassos, and contemporary art, too. On today's episode, I meet two dealers on top of their game who show at Tafoff. First up, British-born New York gallerist Sean Kelly, who over the decades has nurtured the careers of groundbreaking artists like sculptor Anthony Gormley, performance artist Marina Abramovich, painter Kahinda Wiley, and many others. And later on, I speak with the young rising star of Charles Ede Gallery in London, director Karis Tyndall, who deals in ancient art from Egypt, Greece, and the Roman Empire. While the two guests sound light years apart, they both value their contributions to the world of art in deep, meaningful, and similar ways. The two recently collaborated on a single booth for Tafoff's New York edition, where the past and present were in rare dialogue. I spoke with Sean from his gallery just a mile or so away from Grand Tourist headquarters on his early beginnings in the New York art world, how he met Marina Abramovich, and the singular abstract painting he chose to present at Tafoff Online. Sean, the 80s were such a dynamic time in Manhattan for the art scene. What about that time said to you, okay, this is a great time to open up a gallery? Well, absolutely nothing. It was the most stupid <laughs> thing I could possibly have done. I, I think it was very personal. I mean, I really wanted to, I wanted to come to America and I wanted to work here. And I regarded New York as the epicenter of the art world, the contemporary art world, at least, which of course it was and it still is. Ironically enough, the minute I moved to New York, the entire universe collapsed. Uh, in 1989, you know, the market went from being 
really very buoyant and, and, and vibrant to really imploding and becoming incredibly moribund. And we went through the longest recession in the art world. It lasted really from 1989 until 95, which was six straight years, almost inconceivable to anybody now to think of the art world going through a, a recession that, that, that was quite that steep and deep. Um, but that's what it was. And, you know, I figured that if I could survive that, I could pretty much survive anything. And since that time, I pretty much have survived almost anything. I've been through three more recessions, 9-11 and COVID. So, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, to say one that one's been tested is a slight understatement. And what was your gallery like when you first opened its doors? I actually came to work for somebody else. And um, I realized fairly quickly that that wasn't quite going to pan out the way I'd hoped. So uh, in 91, I resigned and I, I was actually on, I was headed back to, to Britain very much with my tail between my legs. And it was my wife that said to me, you haven't come here, what you've done, what you wanted to do. And until you do, we're not going back. And so she sort of put me, put me in my place and uh, told me that I needed to pull myself together and, and and actually deliver on all these wonderful promises I'd made to her. And I started working privately um, with four artists. Who were the four? Uh, Julio Sarmento, Marina Abramovich, Rebecca Horn, and Anne Hamilton. And I didn't have a public space. So I worked privately for a number of years, really more like an agent, uh, until I realized that that was somewhat untenable. And the artists, of course, want their work to be seen and they want to be publicly visible. And if I if I didn't do that, that, that my position would be more difficult. And so in 95, I opened the first public space. And with those first artists that you represented, you know, what, uh, how did you meet these artists back then? What, what sort of drew you to people like Marina? Well, there's a very funny story that's been told many, many times, um, uh, uh, and, and in her biography, her auto, her autobiography of how we met, which is a, which is a rather nice take on it, but isn't entirely true, I guess. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, Marina was, uh, was already a very famous artist and a performance artist. And of course, as a young dealer, just setting out, um, you know, what did I need like a hole in the head? I needed a performance artist who you probably couldn't, couldn't sell the work by. So I had spent many years avoiding Marina like the plague. Um, and we had a lot of friends in common and every time, you know, I knew she was in town. I would arrange to leave just before she arrived mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, vice versa. But in the end, actually, it's funny because it was uh, the wonderful, great, late, recently late and much lamented Julio Sarmento, um, who set me up literally on a blind date with Marina at a restaurant over lunch. Uh, she knew I was going to be there, but I did not know she was going to be there. Mm -hmm. And and when she walked in, I sort of knew I'd been set up. And so we had a very we had a very fun, cordial lunch. At the end of which, I said to her, because it was early on, it was in ninety one. I said to her, you know, Marina, I, I, I you know, I, you, you're incredibly charismatic and wonderful, and all those things, but I just don't have a gallery. Um, <laughs> thinking that that would be the end of it and I'd be able to wriggle out of it. And of course, Marina 
big marina said, oh, darling, that's perfect because you'll be able to give me all your time. Uh, <laughs> I don't want you to have a gallery. I just want you to concentrate on me. And it was a kind of classic marina moment. And we've worked together ever since, which is now 30 years. And she's very much part of my family, part of my personal professional story. And, um, and if you would say, um, of all the artists you've worked with over the years, like what would you say is the common thread that runs between them? Well, formally, absolutely none. Because I, I think that formally, if you looked at uh, Kehinde Wiley, who painted the Obama portrait, um, you know, you would probably think he couldn't be further from Joseph Kasuth, the father of conceptual art, than, than one could imagine. But I do think there are very strong common denominators. Um, and that is that um, I, I think that the artists are in deeply intelligent. I think that they're very committed to their practice conceptually and that they are profoundly committed to moving the conversation about, you know, the, the language of our culture forward in a very, very smart way. I mean, I, I do think that the artists that we work with are very committed to an, a rather old-fashioned, perhaps, sense of the arc and trajectory of, of the artist as a modernist force. And they are still committed to that program, as am I. As someone who's worked with such established artists for so long, what is your relationship with them like as a dealer? I, I think my, you know, at its best, uh, my definition of of being a good dealer is that it should be like a good marriage. Uh, you know, we should be we should be very good partners. But my job is to speak truth to power. My job, as I see it, is to tell them those artists, and especially when they become prominent and famous, the uncomfortable truths that perhaps other people don't want to tell them. And to be a, you know, to be a good editor. I mean, I see my, my role very much as being an editor. Truth be told, most of my work is done by the time the public's involved. And, and I think that my role, when the public are involved and they're present in the work, viewing it and seeing it, or at an opening or at, you know, the Venice Biennale or something like that, you know, my, my role is really to be invisible. Uh, I should at that point have stepped out of the picture and the entire focus should be on the artists. So my role should have been completed by that point. As a veteran of the art world who has shown at fairs the world over, I wanted to dive deeper with Sean on what makes Tafoff such a special place and explore the large abstract canvas he chose to present for the online edition. To me, as someone who's, you know, who is not an art specialist and is more of a generalist who visits lots of art fairs, there's something about Maastricht that, and that fair in particular that feels very special and unique. Um, do you remember your first visit to Maastricht uh, and the fair there? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I wouldn't even confine it to Maastricht in a, in a sense because you know I think it's I think Tafaf in a broader sense, especially since it it came into New York, came in as a very distinctive brand. I mean, it is clearly a very high end event, 
But the thing that I love the most about TAFAF, uh, and I have to say it sort of fits my personality like a glove, is that you know the fair is an opportunity to see all these wonderful things cheek by jowl that are apparently quite disconnected. But of course, they're not. I mean, I collect Egyptian sculpture, and I collect contemporary modernist furniture, and I collect uh, antique jewelry for my wife, and I collect contemporary art, and I collect modernism. And, you know, Tefaf is literally the only place that you can have all of that under one roof. But not only that, it is the best of the best. So, of course, Basel is a hugely important fair and it's wonderful. And, you know, we love doing Basel and have done it for for decades. But what for me, what's unique about the Tafaf brand is that I can go to Charles Ede or to a, uh, a, a dealer of antiquities and see the most wonderful things next to, uh, you know, somebody selling French modernist interiors uh next to a contemporary art dealer next to a modernist next to somebody dealing in armory and you know it's all for me it's all part of the same thing i think quality is quality and i don't collect everything but i i do collect very broadly i mean i over 25 years i put together one of the best collections of 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 james joyce material in the world that we donated to the Morgan Library. So my taste is very Catholic and uh, Maastricht is very Catholic and it's a very, you know, it's in a very Catholic environment uh, historically and contemporaneously. And for me, it's, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm the kid that got the golden ticket. Every time I go to, to, to a Tafaf fair, I'm I'm excited. I'm I'm the kid that got the golden ticket, you know, and won and won the keys to to Willy Wonka's factory. So for me, Tafaf is is always a joy. And in terms of being in, in you know in front of the object and in a real space, uh, you did a booth at Tafaf with Charles Ede, who you know, which you had mentioned before. Um, do you think that this kind of thing is also part of the future that it's about creating, you know, a narrative and a, and a concept that it's not so much just sort of displaying everything, all of your wares. If, if it, Oh, I hope I mean. so. I hope so. Because I mean, that booth that we did in, in New York with Charles Ede uh, was just probably one of my favorite things we've ever done in, in 30 years. Uh, the opportunity to show a painting by Calaminis, uh next to a full-scale Roman sculpture where one was really less concentrated on the face or the arms and more concentrated on the drapery and the relationship between, you know, this, this Roman sculpture, the drapery in this Roman sculpture and a Calaminis painting was absolutely sublime. I mean, it was extraordinary and fabulous. The biggest problem for me, of course, was doing a, a booth with, with those guys was that I wanted to buy everything they had on the booth. So, you know, I became, I, I don't know if I was their biggest client over those five days, but I probably did as much damage as anybody else did happily. Yeah, I mean, seeing a carving, a Greco-Roman uh, votive carving next to a Joseph Kossuth definition from 1968 I mean, completely mind-blowing. How much fun is that? I mean, it was really spectacular. And 
Uh, and I think I, I can't speak for them, but certainly as far as we're concerned, a huge amount of fun to do, a, a memorable booth, and, uh, you know, just a joy to walk onto that booth in the fair every day for me anyway. So this this year for TAFE off for, for this online edition of the fair, um, you're presenting one piece. Yes. Can, can you explain uh, the piece and the artist and, and, and why you chose this one in particular? Yeah, the artist is Janaina Chape. She is a female artist who has a particular, particularly interesting kind of cultural background because she is both German and Brazilian, German and Brazilian parents. She was trained in Germany, and so she has this incredible formal capacity. She was very well trained at an art school in Germany, and she has this very analytical capacity, but it's it's allied to or married to this very Brazilian sensibility. So it's a very sensual kind of let's go for it kind of mentality that informs her paintings. And the, the paintings are extraordinarily kind of vital and passionate, but they but they're very accomplished. And we recently, we started working with her a few years ago. And I, I, through spending a lot of time in the studio with her, you know, we realized that she really wanted to kind of, she, she's somebody who's worked in a lot of different media in, in video, et cetera. And she really wanted to let rip, frankly. And so we invited her, not the sort of thing a dealer normally does, you know, say to your artist, why don't you make the biggest paintings you've ever made and really you know, stretch out. But we felt that it was very important to do that. And so we invited her to do that. And it resulted in this extraordinary body of paintings that in many respects, I think are very, a really breakthrough paintings for her. They have this extraordinarily large ambition. And you can feel that in these works, she's challenging her, her forebears and the precedents of people like, you know, Joan Mitchell and Lee Krasner and Jackson Pollock. But it's filtered through a very contemporary sensibility and a very contemporary sense of reflecting upon landscape and vision and absorbing all these things, but really filtering it and, and producing something completely other that doesn't belong to a prescribed tradition. And we felt that it would be really important instead of trying to show a, a wide range of work um, or to stretch that concept out, just to show one painting that we felt really expressed that intent and focus deliberatively um, and uh, concentrate everybody on that conversation. With this online edition of TAFE off taking place in the pandemic era, I'm wondering what you think the future of the art fair will look like. The conversation is going to be about hybridity. I, I think early on in the pandemic, March of 2020, uh, through perhaps May or June of 2020, everybody was very concerned about was somebody going to come up with a model that allowed us to feel like we were standing in front of the object digitally, you know, in terms of new media uh, that would that would replicate that kind of experience? And the answer is no, they didn't. We're just not there yet. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm not sure when we'll get there uh, or when that particular train will pull into the station. But what I am sure about is that even if it does, and we can represent with the greatest fidelity 
we can walk around the object. We can see it in three dimensions. We can drill down on it, literally, visually. It still will not substitute for physically having your body stand in front of the, the artwork in space because it will still be a replica. And that replica, I, 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 I certainly not in my lifetime, I don't think we'll ever get there. Uh, and maybe in the future, but um, there's no substitute, except no substitutes. You've got to be in front of the object to get the full deal. Next up, Karis Tyndall, director of London's Charles Ede Gallery. She brings a fresh eye to the most ancient of collectible objects. In an age when the contemporary art world keeps growing and growing, I wanted to see what makes a gallery like hers tick, and how she feels ancient Roman jewelry or Egyptian vases fit into our modern world. So we deal in Greek, Roman and Egyptian objects, a little Near Eastern, anything really around the Mediterranean basin, but that's our main focus, those three. And from around the third millennium BC up until the fall of the Roman Empire, really we're talking about the origins of Western art, which is very exciting. And um, and it you know ranges from sculpture to vases to jewelry to glass. I mean, it's the whole lot. It it feels very bizarre calling oneself a specialist when I'm dealing in you know three and a half thousand years of art. <laughs> you know, so how specialised can you be? You would think there's a lot of material out there. Of course, there's a finite amount. Not only is it not being made, but new new material isn't coming onto the market because objects no longer leave their country of origin, haven't done for a long time. Um, Occasionally you get an export license for a piece, but on the whole, you know, what is on the market um, is, is, is stagnant. And as things go into museums, of course, they rarely come back out again. So it's a more and more restricted market. And again, that is quite exciting because you do still discover things that were, you know, quote unquote, unknown about because these objects have been collected really since the Enlightenment period where people started getting excited about antiquity about ancient man and started um, buying these things up. So it's been several hundred years. That's a lot of attics filled with great, great granddad's objects or great, great, great. I don't know how many you'd have to be going back to the grand tour. So Karis, what does it feel like to be a young dealer in such a prominent position, working with objects that are so ancient and your contemporaries are in this fast paced contemporary art world? No, I know. I know exactly. I know, I know. It does seem, and a lot of people associate perhaps antiquities with that idea of, you know, sort of, you know, old gentleman's club and everyone has elbow patches on their tweed suits and, you know, sort of shelves just rammed full of, you know, old broken pots. And, and I think people can conjure up this idea. And actually, I think that a lot of what we deal in is, it, it, there is a lot of glamour to it. I mean, I wouldn't say it's glamorous, but, you know, these objects are exciting. They're thrilling. It's all about how you display them, which pieces you choose. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's, you know, museum quality, doesn't mean that it is a fantastic piece. You know, you're still out there looking all the time for something that is aesthetically pleasing, that um, has a wonderful context that is a very rare example. I mean, you, so by definition, you will never find two antiquities the same. Even if they were produced in the same workshop, they were, you know, have been living underground for you know, centuries or millennia differently. They've reacted differently to their environment. They'll have a different provenance. You know, a lot of very important people um, and interesting people have collected these objects. There are lots of reasons why you 
might find an in, so to speak, as to why you would want to to either collect or learn of these things. I know what you mean. It's not. It, a lot of people do think, you know, sort of age 31 now, you know, it's, it, it is still, I'm the youngest by quite a long way at a lot of these, you know, when we're going to our association meetings and, and you know, when I just, you know, my, my colleagues in essence in the industry, it, it, is, it is a very, very interesting field. And I never really wanted to get into the art world. That wasn't my angle. My angle was, my God, I want to learn more about these objects. I, you know, I found being at art fairs thrilling. You know, I do like the aesthetics of it too. I'm not just interested in something purely for its academic background or whatever accolade it might have on that front, but then I can as well. <laughs> you know, it's like everything has an angle and having studied it and getting a context for pieces, sometimes you go, my God, and I'll sit there, you know, almost jumping from foot to foot talking about how exciting this is. And, and somebody can look at me completely blankly and just say, sorry, I don't, I don't even know who Akhenaten is. What are you talking about? You know, and I think, ah, oh, right. Well, <laughs> okay, maybe that's just, just me on this one. And that at other times, you know, somebody goes, my God, you know, that's, that's 4,000 years old. You know, that's a cup I could drink from it now. And, you know, you say, well, yes, actually, well, do you want to? Because you can, this is in great condition and people do. You mentioned the stereotype of a man living with broken pots, the stereotype of someone who collects antiquities. They're either a villain or a superhero. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everything's kept under a glass case or something that when you lift, you know, dry ice comes out of. <laughs> exactly. And there's a lot of lasers. Yeah. Um, how would you describe your clientele? Who walks through the door? Do you know, it's again, this is one of the things I really love is that our clients are so varied. I mean, two days ago in the morning, I had a client in the gallery who had come here in their private jet. Um, you know, they sort of have a blue tick on Instagram. You know, they are, you know, very much a, a modern person. They were very young. Um, they collect all sorts of art. You know, they, they really are an art collector. And then in the afternoon, I was having a drink with a woman who has a, a little stall in Portobello Market, um, doesn't even own a phone, you know, and, and buys objects, you know, absolutely has a, a different kind of budget, a different kind of criteria. And I love that I'm spending in the same day, you know, you're spending hours with these two very different people. And yet, the one thing that you have in common is this this joint passion and this thirst for knowledge, you know, just to learn, as I say, the idea of being a specialist, you know, actually one can never really be a specialist unless you focus in only on 100 years or 10 years or whatever it is. And I think what unites us is just this desire to learn about our environment. And, and I can learn as much from our clients as they can from, from me sometimes. You know, I think that most of us live sort of diverse lives. We have friends from all different backgrounds of different ages. The things we surround ourselves with, you know, we people would like to ha own a piece of brown furniture that they've put in their completely, you know, everything painted and off-white, you know, very minimalist room, whatever it is. You know, we are, I know the word eclectic's often overused these days, but we do live, I think, surround ourselves, you know, with the eclectic collections. I mean, it's it's how we live. We like the diversity. If, if you have too much of one thing, you start to only really see it through quite a narrow vision. And I think that with the kind of clients we have, be they, you know, a 14-year-old who has been saving up their, you know, sort of pocket money or working weekends, whatever it is, to, you know, buy an antiquity, because these objects start, you know, at thousands. Yes, they go up to hundreds of thousands or millions, but 
but there is no barrier to entry with ancient objects. Um, and if you do just want to buy two fantastic pieces, you know, those clients will, will have you call them clients, but, you know, you might only sell one thing to them or, you know, three things to them. And, and then that's it. They, they've got their antiquities. They're done with that section now and they'll move on. You have this section on your website where you have things for sale for young collectors at a more accessible price point. Is this a challenge for you bringing in a younger crowd? I'm sure it dovetails nicely with this new era of online fairs, does it not? It, it is. And some people do think, because we also do a, a Christmas catalog each year, which is 70 to 80 objects, everything under £5,000. And a lot of other dealers say, Karis, why do you bother with this? It's so time consuming. You make absolutely no money from it. You know, what's the point? And it, it, it's two things. I'd like to justify it by saying, oh, you never know who's going to buy a few small things. And then, um, you know, one day when they've got comfortable with buying antiquities, they'll buy something really important. They might be buying, it's a Christmas catalog because people do buy these things for presents for people. But the other part is, I wouldn't want to just deal in, you know, 20 objects a year. I it, It's a fascinating field. And the more things that we have, the more you see, the more I get to learn and research on them. And we can't everything, you know, this is not, we've got 600 items in stock. They can't all be worth 100,000. You know, you can't find 600 items at that value that are good. Um, But also, you know, you have to have very deep pockets for that. So it's, it's partly... Because I think it's it's wonderful not to have a barrier to market that these objects should be enjoyed by anyone and you shouldn't be priced out of it. Um, it's educational. We sell a lot to museums and to universities who have more limited budgets and they want to be able to teach their students. They want things that they can pass around for their students to handle. And again, you don't, you know, insurance is a nightmare if they're very expensive, but you should still be able to buy a South Italian pot for a few thousand pounds. And, you know, it's it's sturdy enough. It's all right. That can be passed around. Yes, this this new collector's section, you know, it is, it, it's not essential for you as a dealer, but I think it is essential for one's soul. Okay. For the totally uninitiated, how do you describe a fair like Tafoff? Oh, well, I, <laughs> yeah, I would say it is a fair like no other. Even if you are the initiated, it's still, I, I think, the, the best thing out there. People bring the most amazing quality of, of objects. Um, the variety is fantastic. It is a, a, a fair that people don't just go to for an afternoon. You go to for several days because you walk up and down the same aisles and you'll see different things. Sometimes it's because they quite literally, they will have different things out on display because something gets sold and something else gets put in its place. But also you you can get distracted. I mean, you know, people bring a lot of, we have big stands there and and there's a lot for you to digest. And it's, it's thrilling. You really do have the brightest people who dealing in the objects um, or whatever their field is in, in the world. And so learning from them is just the most phenomenal opportunity. Karis, you did a booth at TAFE Off New York with our other guest, Sean Kelly, where you combined the old and the new. Can you take us through what that booth was like? Oh, do you know what? It was such fun to put together. It was really enjoyable. And it was, it was one of those things we had several conversations, obviously, with, with Sean, who we'd known for a long time. And 
you know, and he, he, he collects antiquities as well. And so he really understands them and he understands the way he looks at them is, is through, I mean, everybody looks at, at something through a slightly different lens because we all, you can't help but take your own life experience when you are um, around an object and especially ones that have such presence as antiquities that have, are so steeped in their own history. But what we really loved is we'd have discussions and, and we'd see some of his pieces and I'd go, oh, Sean, do you know, I think actually I've got something that I think really resonates. And, and we'd make a pairing and we'd think, yup. And then when they're on the booth and then I would hear him talking to someone about maybe one of his pieces, you know, that we'd paired and I'd go, oh my gosh, you know, it, there's yet another layer as to why these two objects have been next to each other. They've been talking to each other this whole time in a way that we didn't appreciate because I hadn't heard you give that sort of spiel to someone about it or explain that about the artist who created it. And, and it's that kind of, it, it's a lot of fun these objects as with contemporary art, with ancient art, with all of it, you know, you, I mean, it's like poetry. Someone might've written it and wanted it to be interpreted in a certain way. It doesn't mean that's the only way you can interpret it. And it's such fun looking at these objects in different ways and understanding them differently. Because ultimately we don't know what was going through the artist's minds. We don't really know, you know, we think we know the world that they were living in, but we don't. You know, we all we know is what has been passed down to us. And so understanding human nature is so important when you're dealing with artists who are no longer around. And you think, well, why would they have done that? And it's why I think, especially with the cutting edge contemporary, because you it's it's a lot of it's about philosophy, it's about understanding human wants and desires and needs. And that's what we really need to remember with antiquities. These objects were created f- for purpose. And and I and I just found it so interesting and fun with this collaboration um, with Sean that we were sort of reanalyzing our objects, you know, having catalogued them, and sometimes in a slightly more academic manner. You know, this is you know sort of late Helladic three, you know, by the so and so painter, and it's got this little motif, you know, that is known as is sort of you know B six two three is how we refer to it. And you think Do you know, that that's not that interesting for a lot of people. I mean, it's it's important and it has its merits, but you, actually sometimes you need to just pare it back and and just ask yourself the basic question of why was man making this? Why would you need this object? Why would you put an octopus on it that had tentacles that writhed round and round and round the vessel and and wove in and out? It's not because you needed to represent an octopus. You were being playful. You found the imagery fun or entertaining or, um, you know, it, it, it evoked some emotion in the person who was, was creating it that they wanted to relay to the person who was going to buy it from them. These are not people creating things for themselves, like with a lot of art today. Okay. For the online edition of the fair, you're showing three objects. Can you walk us through these pieces and why you chose them? We're meant to have a narrative for the objects that we're bringing. We're allowed to bring three objects, each of which we haven't shown before. And so the first, this, this narrative, we want to speak with them because, of course, we still want to give a breath. It's, it's the idea of the expansion and contraction of time. We live with antiquities now. And people sometimes look at them and they can think, gosh, but that was ancient man. And actually, I think that that's all very subjective because if you look at ancient man, you know, sort of when man was was creating, you know, the pyramids and then you look at the Romans and that 
time span was the same between the Romans and us. So us referring to all of those people as though they're one you know, version of ancient man just doesn't exist. So for example, the first object that we have is an Egyptian head made of quartzite. Um, it dates to the New Kingdom, so around 1300 BC. It's a very beautiful, very finely carved head. It's in quite a likeness. I mean, it looks exactly I mean, Egyptianizing, but very much of a real man um, with a wig that's very realistically done. It's a beautiful tripartite wig and he's got the false beard on as well. At the same time as that piece was being made in Egypt, so further north in the Aegean, there was someone creating a, a hydria, a water vessel, which has on it this um, heavily stylized, very abstract image of an octopus with these tentacles writhing all around the shoulder. And this idea that, you know, it, it might be what someone might call, you know, in inverted commas, contemporary, this idea of it being a bit more abstract or, you know, um, or, the, or the form being simplified to a point where you almost, you know, if you saw it at the wrong angle, you go, well, what on earth is that? You know, the, these two objects were living in the world at the same time in a way that now man, you know, when we create pieces, we know we, we have all the technology and the ability to create things in true likeness, in abstract form. It's whatever the artist wants to do. And I think that sometimes people forget that about ancient man, that even then, you know, they had all the same capabilities that we do now, maybe not exactly the same technology, although, of course, we're still using their technologies now. But they wanted to make things either in a likeness or in an abstract form for a specific reason. And, and it's exploring those reasons as to why. And But looking at these two pieces, when I talk about the idea of, of expansion and contraction of time, when you look at them, you presume they were made hundreds of years apart because they couldn't be more different aesthetically. Um, you know, one is an object um, made of stone that to create it, you've had to carve away at the material. The other one is an object made of terracotta. It's a man-made material. And to create it, you've had to build it up. Um, you know, one shows a human, one shows an animal that's so geometric, it, it just looks like a pattern. You know, these, these two things are very different. And yet, actually, the man who said, make this head of me, was trading with the the culture that made this vase, and you see these vases in the tombs of the people, you know, of, of the man who who made this image of himself. They're they're very interlinked, and and I just think that this really nicely shows again the breadth of of collecting antiquities, what we're dealing with. And then when you then look at the third piece we've got is a is a little gold ring, Hellenistic. So again, it's made by a Greek. The other ones were made by Greeks and Egyptians. So you'd think, oh, they're worlds apart, but they weren't worlds apart. And then you look at another one by a Greek and it's got an image of a storage, a liquid vessel on it. There's an amphora, but you know, they carried very similar things, were both used for feasting. You might think, oh, those are well, those are very similar. They're both made by Greeks, they both show the same imagery on them. You know, they both one of them is, the, the ring is showing a satyr, so again from the natural world, like showing the octopus. And yet they're a thousand years apart in the creation of them. The Mycenaeans, by the time this ring was made, the, the Mycenaean culture had, had ceased to exist. You, of course, the, we still refer to them all as being Greek because that's geographically where they were from, but they didn't really know much about each other. They, they had no interaction. 
And so, you know, it's quite a long way of answering your question. But what I love is this, again, you know, there we have what you think to be a constriction of time is actually a huge expansion of, of, of physical time. They were, they were very far apart. And it's a very, it's a very hard thing for one to get one's mind around as well. But it's, you know, it, it's exactly, it's how we, we live now and we surround ourselves because we know so much about, you know, ancient man, even, you know, about um, prehistory as well. What I love is that even in antiquity, they already thought about ancient man. You know, they would look and, and the Romans would go and, and collect Greek antiquities because, and then copy them because, you know, in the same way that, you know, in Renaissance um, Europe, they would copy Roman pieces. And, and so I just love, again, you get the sense of just one continuum of humans looking back to our past to understand our present. And we want to be surrounded as the Romans want to be surrounded by the Greek originals and the Roman copies. We want to be surrounded by, you know, modern interpretations of ancient pieces as well as the ancient pieces themselves. Karis, if there was one thing you wanted listeners to understand about the online edition of Tevov and what you're presenting, what would that be? I think these days I'm feeling quite philosophical about mankind. And I think a lot of us are. We're, we're questioning motives, we're questioning behavior, and, and we're actually questioning the status quo. What I love about surrounding myself in antiquities is reminding myself that humans are infallible. And whilst we can always strive to improve, sometimes human nature can't be helped. And when I look, so for example, one of the rings that we've got, um, it, it's of a, a satyr that is nude. He's physically sexually excited on it. He's playing uh, uh, an instrument that Hitarii, sort of high-class courtesans would play. He's sitting on an overturned amphora, which is implying that he's a bit drunk. This ring would have been um, worn by probably a man um, because of the imagery and, you know, from high society. And it makes one think sometimes people's behavior or perhaps the environment that they're in, we, we are all going to constantly try to improve our surroundings. But there's a lot of, in that image, there's a lot of people hinting to base human nature and instincts and things that we, you know, revelry, drunkenness, um, you know, want sort of an overt sexuality that you may pay for, that kind of thing, the vices perhaps in life. And you think it's actually, do you know what, they would wear it on their finger, get it all out there, talk about it, look at it, question it. We don't know if the person who was wearing it was encouraging it or, or if they were, you know, this was just a party piece or if they simply wanted to bring up the conversation. But I think it's good for us to talk about these things and work out why someone wants to represent something, why they want to behave in a certain way, why they want to create something. Why do you want to own that ring? What what image are you trying to put out there to people? But I, I, I like this and it makes me, I feel and dealing with antiquities makes me more forgiving of when I think people perhaps behave badly in society, say things that I think, how can you do that? We should be more advanced civilization. And you realize because we're no more advanced than we were back then. We just keep questioning ourselves. We need to keep doing that. But forgive humans for being human because we've been this way for millennia and we can't change overnight. Thank you to Sean, Karis, and everyone at both galleries for making this episode possible. 
and a special thanks to TAFOF for their support. Visit TAFOF.com to register for the online fair, running September 9th through the 13th. The editor of this episode is Stan Hall. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Grand Tourist. Don't forget that season two will begin in October. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more, or shoot me an email at dan at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. 